Good morning. Good morning. Uh, please turn to our, to our scripture for this morning. The text today will be from. It's Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. You'll find that, that on page 987 of your of your pew Bible. 98 sound calling bingo. Page 987. It's 1 Thessalonians 4. 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even though through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the, with the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will gather with them in the clouds, meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. We're back today in Thessalonians, and I'll invite you, I'll invite you to tables and turn back to First Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, beginning at verse 13, if it happened to fall closed, closed on your lap. Out of this for a couple of weeks weeks uh, for good reason we uh, were privileged to hear one of my very favorite preacher preachers last week uh, my father and I just wanted to say thank you to do for always being so uh, loving and one of my parent-in-laws uh, I can tell you that they love you all very much and, and uh, this is a, a special they consider this a very special place uh, to be you for your, your your kindness. I'm very thankful for another opportunity to open to open up the God uh, to folks who are hungry to hear it and to take it in. And you know that in in lots of people's views, this is just kind of like a like a dusty, antiquated tome that has no bearing on our modern moderns. Uh, but anyone who has ever cracked the cover knows. That the exact opposite is actually the case. That, that, that the word of God is so absolutely up-to-date and, and relevant. And it has, it, it has that amazing power, uh, aided as it is by the Holy Spirit, to really get to the heart of every issue that we're facing. And not only that, but with almost surgical precision, it has the ability to get right into our hearts and to pierce, as it were, even the division between uh, jo joint and row. Um, so uh, we, we turn with delight and with expectation to God's word, uh, hoping that it will not, not just instruct us, but, but, but change us and help us to live this dangerous journey and uh, this perilous Christian life. Well, speaking of the revel, uh, relevance of God's word, this is certainly the case as we come to chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. 
And this is really the heart of Paul's first letter to that brand new church. And in the, the heart of this letter, he's dealing with all of the nitty-gritty details of their daily life. Last, last time we were in this book, we had uh, the, the privilege of uh, looking at Paul's instruction as it pertained to the very relevant issue of sexual sexual. Um, it dealt with uh, also just our daily work, work, which when math, that's where we spend the bulk of our time is working with our hands and hopefully minding our own P's and Q's. Uh, th uh, th this really gets exactly to where we live. And today is no exception. Today Paul is going to speak into an area that affects every single one of our lives. He's going to talk about bereavement after the death of a loved one. You know that profound sor sorrow and, and grief that we experience when someone close to us, someone that we dearly love, is taken away. And as you know, you know from, from your own experience, that, that, that grief can be crippling. And you can be gripped by it, by it seemingly out of nowhere. Just when you thought maybe you were past it, you hear a a song or something reminds you of that person even years after the funeral and you were overcome with sorrow and what we desperately need in the midst of our sorrow is hope hope now the name of this sermon series is faith hope and love and uh, really because i think that's a, a, a decent title a working title anyway, because that those, those really are the theme permeate through both of these letters to these Thessalonian believers. Uh, this holy trinity of virtues, faith, hope, and love, seem to crop up all throughout these. We've already had occasion to cons consider love, uh, to talk about the love, the love that poured into the hearts of these new believers, uh, the love that they received from the Lord, and then reciprocated back to the back to the Lord and to other people, and we've also had a case talk a lot. I think I think about faith, which is you know the content of what it was that these people had believed. Indeed, what these people these people had staked their lives on, named gospel of God, uh, the the good news of the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. Well, we're now moving into a portion of the letter. The letter has us thinking about that time when faith is going to be finished. When the Lord will return and faith will turn to sight. We've already sung a little bit about this and we'll, we'll sing some more about this, I, I, prom I promise. Uh, but we want to look forward a little bit. That time when there is no more need for faith. When seeing, we'll, we'll be able to see with our eyes and we'll be changed in a moment. Now, of course, delving in, into issues pertaining to that period of time, sometimes referred to as the end times, we're going to be treading on some pretty treacherous grounds. I, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I, when I say that there may be no, no other area of Christian theology that is fraught with so much 
danger, so much speculation, so, so many strong feelings attached, attached, beliefs about the end times. Entire industries and ministries have sprung up around the various views, and a lot of Christians have separated themselves and, and, and kind of fallen into the line under their, their favorite egg. And in our discussion of this topic, we're going to attempt to transcend all of that, all of those petty arguments about eschatology, not because we're wimping out, not because we're soft, but rather, rather because we want to stick firmly to the text. And one thing that I hope that you'll notice today and next week, Lord willing, especially... Um, I think especially next week, we'll, we'll need to see this, that, is that the authors, and when I say author, I'm talking about the human author and the divine author, the authors don't really feel very obligated to satisfy our curiosity or to indulge all of our speculations about timing of these, you know, the sequencing of these events pertaining to the Lord's return. It's really striking that uh, those sorts of fancies are not, these are not bulged very much by Paul and ultimately by the Lord. I hope you will be struck, not just by what, the, by what these do say, but what these texts do not, not say. Things that perhaps we've been told that they say, or things that we've tried to get them to say, Things that they definitely do not not say. Trust me, you're not going to be disappointed if you do this. Because the things that this text does say is more, is more than enough hope. Lasting hope. hope. Like the kind of hope that doesn't fiddle, uh, phase, phase out or, or disappear in your mouth like cotton candy. Uh, we, uh, we, we need we need a certain and that can endure through the mo most difficult of times. That's what we desperately need. And uh, we, we need, like I said, we need a, need a hope that's, that's fully founded on the truth, on certainty, not on speculation. So that's what I'm going to be focusing on, and I, I hope you're with on that. I, I will, I think, probably have, have a few things to say. Uh, about some of these discussions, but, but we want to focus on hope and, and to properly harvest this hope, this hope, put it that way, that way we're going to have to do a little time drawing. As we look at our text, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses, th verses 13, we're going to hop around, around through time. So we're going to hop from the present to the past to the future, and then back So if you're following uh, the outline in one of its many forms, if, if you're taking notes, these are going to be your main headings. These are going to be your stops along the way. We're going to go from, go from the present, past, to the, to the future, back into the present. And it's going to be in intense. Some of you will get that as you're, as you're leaving. But at, but at the end of our travels, I pray that we will have harvested enough hope, both for ourselves 
and for others, so that we might share with, with others who are dealing dealing with and sorrow over the loss of loved ones. So that's where we're going. That's our roadmap. roadmap. If uh, by God's grace we can make all of our stops. First, let's consider the present need for hope. The present need for, and this has us focusing especially on verse 13. I think it's appropriate that we start with the present, and not necessarily our present, although we're certainly going to come to that, but, but what, what would have been the present context for those who first received Paul's letter? And a lot of this we have to piece together, because we, you know, in having, having the, we only have one side of the conversation. And we don't, you know, we, you know, we don't have transcript of Timothy's post-visit report to Paul, where he would have told him all of the various things that these new believers were struggling with, the things that they had questions about. We don't have that material, but there's, there's, there's usually enough information on the one end to help you kind of figure out what's going on on the other end. Like when you walk into the room and your mom is talking on, on her cell phone to to someone and you don't you don't immediately know who she's talking to and you don't know immediately what they're talking about but if you hang around kind of lurk in the corner of the room you you can figure it out pretty quickly based on the kinds of things that your mom is saying right and we like to investigate that sort of thing we like to do the detective work well, in the same way, when we read Paul's instructions, we can, we can kind of piece, piece together what the present situation might have been on the other end of things. And as we do that, let me just encourage you to put yourself in the in the people, all of whom would have been brand new Christians, baby, baby with no family or heritage of faith, um, these are people that don't have years and centuries and millennia of church history. history behind. They don't have a, a, a body of doctrine that they can, can you know, from. Think, think about what it would be like to hear for the very first time that Jesus Christ has, had died for sinners and had been, been buried and again on the third day. Think about what it would have been like like to to hear, to believe that Jesus was coming back again. And and that he could return at any time. Even as as Dick prayed, even even before the end of a prayer or the end of a sermon. What would it have been like to to, to turn to God from idols to serve the the living and true God, as um, chapter 1 verse 10 says? What would it be like for the believers to, to really sincerely wait for his son from heaven, which that verse goes on to say, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us not to come. Can you imagine what it would have been like to live your life with that sort of expectation? You know, regularly looking skyward to see if Jesus was coming was come to, to save you finally and It would do us all well to imagine what that would be like because that's what we're all still called to do. That's the posture that we're all supposed to, supposed to take. But then imagine what it would have been like to have time, time go on. You can picture this a little easier. 
you know, for as a new Christian, Christian expecting the return of, of, the, of the Lord, then time goes on and on, and the fellow Christians in your church die. And perhaps, perhaps they're dying as martyrs, perhaps they're, they're folks that have just lived to, uh, to uh, age or, or, or died and died in, in the ways we die, some, some, some more expectedly. But added to the, the separation, you know, the sorrow that comes from being separated from, from those people that you love, I think to that would be the fear that, fear that, that maybe these people had somehow missed out. You know, that, that, that they're not going to be around for the consummation of all things when Jesus returns. Maybe they were second-class Christians. And then consider how, how susceptible you might be in that state to the false teaching that would certainly come through town, claiming that Christ's return had already happened, and, and that so you yourself had missed it. Imagine the depths of despair that might overtake you. It seems like, when we, when we piece all together from these letters, it seems like all of these things were going on these new believers in Thessalonica. And so, presently, they stood in great need of hope and encouragement. Much of their excess of sorrow and despair stemmed from their ignorance. Not, not any kind of bad, willful ignorance, but just from not knowing certain truths that, that they might derive hope from. And the result was that the way that they grieved was indistinguishable from the way that their pagan neighbors grieved. If you compared their cries, you'd never really be able to tell that these two groups of people radically believed different things. And by the way, this is emerging as something of a theme for Paul. This idea of comparing Christians with unbelievers. You may have noticed that, that Paul is particularly interested in how our Christian conduct ought to contrast with the conduct of unbelievers. For example, as we looked at last time, how we control our, bo- our body is to be radically different from the Gentiles. They, they give their bodies over in passionate lust. There's no restraint. They're unbridled. Ours, the Christian, is called to control control his or her own body in holiness and honor. There's to be a radical difference. In addition, the way that we work, the way that we, we walk, the way that we live our lives ought to be drastically different from outsiders. And Paul expects that we would walk Properly, properly before these outs. You can see that in verse 12. As, a, as a, te- a testimony to them. And now, in verse 3, Paul's arguing that even our, our grief is distinct from the unbelievers. It's clear, and Paul makes clear, that there are two, two types, of, types of crying. Okay, there's, one is distinctly Christian, and one, the other is distinctly pagan. One is a hope-filled grief, and the other is a hopeless grief. 
hopeless is what the world engages in whenever there is death. And that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Just think about it. You know that the non-Christian world worldview holds that the material, material, you know, that physical matter is only reality. Consequently, death means disintegration of, ma of matter. It means the end of one's existence. And so the separa separation from our loved ones that death painfully thrusts on us in, in the minds of unbelievers, commit. final. That, that's, that's where it's all going, and that's it. We're all destined to, to push up daisies according to the atheistic worldview. And, and spokesman, in many ways, anyways, would be a guy like Lenin, who us uh, to imagine that there's no heaven, no hell below us, above us, only sky. He asked us to imagine no religion. religion. Uh, he, he asked us to, ima to imagine all the people living for today. And it sounds all very nice, until there's no more living and there's no more t today and then it's hor horrifying it's 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 a nightmare in the face of death dreamers like john lennon and he's not the only one uh they 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 turn very quickly into despairers that, that's all they got this is it eat, drink, and be merry. It would be a, a travesty. It would be a terrible testimony if Christian sorrow and pagan sorrow were indistinguishable. But this, this is precisely the, the present danger in Thessalonica. Large because of their ignorance. And so Paul is determined that they wouldn't remain ignorant or uninformed. He's going to encourage these Christians with truth to meet their present need of hope. And let's just come right up to the present, to Dansville, New York, 2022, and admit that even, even though we're not nearly as ignorant or uninformed as those baby Christians in Thessalonica in the first century, we still presently have a massive need for hope. When it comes to our deceased loved ones, it seems to me that there, there's two opposite errors that, that we tend to fall into, and both of them are hope deficient, let's put it that way. One error occurs when, when Christians believe they have to face the death of a loved one with stoicism, with a, with, with a stiff upper lip, and, and some think that it's ungodly to grieve. And maybe people don't say that explicitly. Maybe no one's got the nerve to come right out and say that. But the advice that they give you when you've lost someone and from the, the, the trite ways that they try to comfort you, it seems pretty clear that they think that your tears are evidence of your weak faith. Maybe no one, again, actually said that to you. But somehow you, somehow you still kind of feel the about still feeling sad after six months or a year or a dec decade. But I want you to this, 
if you're the type of person that maybe believe that or can be tempted to believe that, I want you to notice that the two option, options that the apostle gives in this passage are grief with hope, hope and grief without hope. Those are your two options. Not grieving is not one of the options. If not was godly, then Jesus himself somehow missed the memo. In, in the shortest and I think one of the greatest verses in all of scripture, we read that as he stands in front of the, the tomb of his good friend Lazarus, Jesus wept. Real tears. Now the error at the other extreme is, is when our tears have the same note of bitterness as the tears of unrest. When, when we are inconsolable, when we are distraught to the point of despair. And with, when, whenever this happens, our grief really bears all of the marks of, of or at least amnesia. We're, we're unaware or we are forgetting some very important truths. And thus, we're robbing ourselves of the hope, hope that comes truths. That is what Paul is eager to help with. Paul is determined to introduce us or reintroduce us, remind us of, this, of these great truths that will, will pump hope into, into our hearts. But, but to really get at that truth requires us to go back in time. So we come to our second, st second stop. Is the past basis for the past base for hope. You, you can see this especially in verse 14. In verse 14, in uh, Paul's, Paul's effort to inform the Thessalonians about those who sleep, Paul begins by bringing them back to something that they, they already know. He reminds them of the very thing that he delivered to them when he first visited. He reminds them of that thing that, that came with the Holy Spirit and thus with power and with full, con full conviction. He reminds them of the very thing that they believed and received with all, all, of, all of their heart and soul. Namely, the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ. We believe, Paul writes 14, that Jesus died and rose again. That's what we believed. That's what, that's what Paul believes. That's what his associates believe. That's what the Thessalonians believe. That Jesus died and rose again. And really, that's the gospel in a nutshell. It's, it's shorthand, of course, because you know there's so much more could be said. And no doubt, so much more was said when Paul first delivered this to them. For example, you know, if he wanted to, Paul could expand on the fact that, yes, Jesus died, but not because of his sins. He was sinless. Rather, Jesus died in our place. He suffered under the wrath of God that was coming on me because of my sin. He died in my stead. The judgment that my sins deserve fell on him, not me. And in this way, Jesus saves me and you 
from wrath that is that is to come. So Jesus dies and and he's buried, but three days later he's raised triumphantly from the grave. This this power of God and the demonstration of his complete complete acceptance of work on our behalf, on behalf of sinners. And if the cross was a demonstration of Jesus' triumph over sin and the devil, then then resurrection is a demonstration of Christ's triumph over death and the grave. This is what we believe. This is the gospel. But this is also you 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 can tell this is shorthand because we know that we know that there's more to this. Not only has Christ been raised, but he has ascended to the hand of God the Father, where he rules and where he reigns, reigns where he enters for his people. But even that's not the end of the story. King Jesus is coming again to judge his enemies and to save his people fully and finally. This is what we believe, brothers, brothers and sisters. This is the bedrock of our belief. Forty years ago, a hymn writer put it this way. This is the threefold truth on which our faith depends. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come. Do you understand Paul's argument in verse 14? He's saying that there's a certain logic to the gospel, and this logic serves as the basis for hope. Something like this. You believe the gospel, right? You believe that someone has died and been raised? Well, then believe that God has the power to, to raise the dead. You believe that the resurrection, you understand, is not just a one-off. Rather, Jesus Christ was the first, first fruits of a huge harvest. harvest. A, just a, a, a tiny glimpse of what's going to happen to all who are united him by faith. Now, this idea of, of being with Christ, I think, is... is is key to this hope that we're that we're meant to have. this hope that we're talking about an indispensable part of that is this concept of union with Christ and and you all through this passage it's indicated by phrases like through him and with him you can see that in verse 14 and even um, a phrase like this the dead in Christ which you see at the end of verse verse 6 if you want an illustration of this, I, I suppose you could think about tandem skydiving. Now, I haven't done that, but and this might be hard for you to believe, but when my wife was a young adult, she went skydiving. That's right, my, my wild and crazy Georgia peach jumped, jumped out of plane at 5,000 feet. And, yeah, yeah. And, and she lived to tell about it. And the main reason for this, without taking anything away from my wife, that's a that's a huge accomplishment. But one of the big reasons for this was that she was strapped to a guy who was professional. Okay, they were they were tied together in such a way that they went in the same direction. You know, wherever he went, she and. 
And they were tied together in such a way that their fates were connected. If he went splat, well, then she would go splat. Thankfully, that is not what happened. They landed relatively softly and safely, and we praise God. In some ways, this is, this is what our union with Christ means. It means that we are, we're strapped to him with unbreakable bonds. And that means, among other things, that our, our faith are tied together. So if Christ dies, there's a very real sense in which we die. But Christ is raised, and so we, we are raised. And to come directly to the point that Paul makes in verse 14, verse 14 the union with Christ guarantees that God will bring with Christ those who have fallen asleep in him. And, and here, let's not keep this abstract. We're talking about precious, precious people like your dad, your wife, your sister. We, we really need to get, to get past this idea that the gospel is something that you believe at the be beginning, you know, that in order to enter the Christian life, and once you're in, you kind of move, move on to better things. No, no, there's nothing bigger, there's nothing, nothing better than gospel. It's the basis for our hope. Now, this uh, trip back in time, I think, propels us forward and forward into the future, into our third point, the future certainty of hope. So look at verses 15 to 17. A, a, a real crucial part of Paul's information campaign are the, are the details that he gives about the future in, verse, in these verses that I mentioned, 15 to 17. And I alluded to in the introduction, there's lots of details, I think you'll agree, that Paul leaves out. out. Details that we are very cur curious about. But I think, it's, I think it's all crucial to realize that, that Paul has given us all of the details that we need in order to have true and lasting hope. If Paul has given us these details, understand that he's only the messenger. This is a word from the Lord, as he says in verse 15. Now, scholars disagree whether... whether Calling on what Paul, which, what Jesus taught during his earthly ministry in passages like I don't know Matthew twenty four that sort of thing, or if this word from the Lord is something that that he's received subsequent at kind of secret revealed to him so that he might deliver it to us by apostolic authority. I don't know either either way. It's important that we know that this, come, this comes from the Lord. And so we can be confident as to the truth, truthfulness of what is about to be said, simply because of the source. This is true. It's spoken from the Lord himself, and you can take it to the bank. Now here's the gist of it. First of all, there's two groups of people in mind. Okay? Uh, here we go again with two groups. Except this time... Both of these groups are believers. One group are, are made up of Christians that will have died before the second coming of Christ, glorious appearing. What's described in this passage, passage is parousia. That's a fancy 
word that just means it's the coming of the Lord, the appearing of the Lord. So there, there's going to be one group of believers who have already died when that takes place. And the other group are, are going to be those who are still alive. Believers who are still alive when Jesus comes back. Make sure that you see that in the text. Two groups, both believers, one dead when Christ returns, one still alive. And by the way, you need to notice how Paul refers to the second group. He does so a couple of different ways in these verses. These are Christians who are alive, he says. And another way of saying this is, is that they are people who are left according, uh, unto the coming of the Lord, who are left. And in discussions of the end times, reference will invariably be made to those who are quote-unquote left behind. But, but I think it's very important that we use biblical terminology and that we use it on it. In First Thessalonians, those who are left are believers who have not died before Jesus returns. I just wanted to point that out, that out, and leave it there. Actually, no, I can't. No, I can't. I want to. Let me just say a little bit more. Because this is the main text that teaches us about the rapture. What is the rapture according to Scripture? Well. Look at verse 17. This is where this comes from. It's the experience of being caught up. And the Latin word for that, Greek word, is the word that we get rapture from. The word in the original is, is almost violent in its action, which I think expresses both, both the, the power passion of, of being united, not just spiritually, as has always been, but but now finally physically by being united to Christ in the air as he descends in glory. Glory. That's the rapture. Is the rapture secret? Hardly. It's signaled by three things: a cry of command, the voice of the voice of the angel, and a blast from God from God's trumpet. We, we, we uh, a little earlier, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation. This this is the idea. Now, given the fact that the fact that we celebrated Independence Day, I suspect this illustration that I'm about to about to use is going to have little impact on you. But something similar happens, albeit on a much smaller scale. Her Majesty the Queen, the Queen arrives on the scene. Her, her arrival is signaled blast from the trumpet. You know? And a shout, a shout herald or some, some um, servant position, a, a, long, a long man for her loyal subjects to greet her in a worthy manner. And if she came today, some of us would do that. Others of you likely, likely would. And that's fine, but just under, understand that royalty, when when king, when uh, when the king comes, this is what is proper to happen, and it's also very customary 
if royal royalty set to arrive in a certain place, it was very common for, for dignities of that city to, to go out to meet that party, that royal party, perhaps traveling hundreds of miles so that they might, they might meet them and then escort them into the city in an appropriate way. And I believe that this is what Paul is revealing about time when King Jesus appears. He's going to come with loud fanfare, and his people are going to go out to meet him in the air. Again, at that time, the Lord's people are found in two groups, those who have have died and those who are alive when Jesus appears. And here's, here's how Paul wants to encourage these previously uninformed Thessalonians who were worried about their loved ones, these, these Christian, dear Christian saints who have died before Christ has come. Here's how, how Paul wants to reassure them. He says that those who are alive when the Lord returns will not have any kind of advantage or priority over those who have already died. In fact, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those who are left will rise. And in this way, together, we will all be with the Lord forever. Friends, and I hope we're still friends after this, I submit to you that this is what the Bible teaches about the rapture. This is what the Lord has revealed, revealed about take place when he returns. And because this is a word from our Lord, we can be certain about these future events. We can have hope about our own fate and about the fate of our loved ones who have died in the Lord, in the Lord whom we grieve, but grieve with hope. Let's turn now to a, a final point. Let's jump out of the, jump out of the future and back into the present to see the, the present command concerning hope. present command concerning You can see this in verse 18. This after the, the apostle has downloaded a bunch of information to us because he doesn't want us to be uninform, uninformed because he have hope. But you know how it is, whenever we get information, we, we always want to know how we can use it. You know, I, I'm sure our brother, brother Tom hears this all the time. I know this is something that would drive my high, high school math just absolutely batty. You know, he, he teaches how to solve a quadratic equation, and then some wise guy from the back would say, when are we going to use this in real life? And that would my math teacher off. He would say, you won't. You'll be working, working at McDonald's for the rest of life. <laughs> it seems to me that, that so much of our discussions about end times are, are like figure out complicated, complicated, you know, so much work, so much finagling, but with very little practical use. Not so for Paul intends this teaching to be immensely practical, not just for ourselves. You know, this isn't just for our own personal consolation. This is meant for corporate consolation. 
and comfort. And just so that we don't, that we don't miss it, we have this command in, in verse 18. By apostolic authority, therefore, encourage one another with these, with these words. These, these words are meant for us to, to encourage others with. We're meant to pump other people up with this gospel hope. People who are deflated, baited because of overwhelming sorrow. People who, who in their except grief have lost sight of, of the past and are losing sight of the future. We're commanded to come alongside such people and strengthen them. Elsewhere, we're commanded to weep with those who weep. That is to come alongside uh, that brother or sister and to shoulder some of that sorrow. But, but the command in verse 18 takes us even a step further. We're to speak words of comfort to those saints in the midst of their sorrow. And man, we struggle with that, don't we? I, I don't think I'm just speaking for myself when I say that we know that we ought to speak, but we don't exactly know what to say. Never are we so tongue-tied as when we're standing in a receiving leaving line at calling hours. Uh, writer's block hits the hardest when we've sat down to write someone a sympathy note. What are you saying? What can I possibly say? But Paul is so helpful. He doesn't just give us the command to comfort people. He gives us content of how we're to comfort them. He instructs, encourage one another with these words. Which words? The words of this passage, the, this word from the Lord about the past, the gospel, about the future, about the glorious appearing of Christ. Let's encourage one another about all of the implications of our union with Christ and, and what the resurrection means for, for us, for our loved ones. Let's encourage each other with the words that Paul uses to describe believers who have died. Did you notice this? There are people who have died in the Lord. Oh, what a, what a sweet thing to say about someone who has passed. They've died, they've died in the Lord. That's just pregnant with all sorts of promises. That's not just a euphemism. We're very familiar with all of the euphemisms that, that, that our cult uses to refer to death. And they, do, and they do that in a hopeless sort of a way. We're using actual biblical language that is hopeful. Here's, here's how Paul, Paul also refers to these dear saints, saints who have died. They've fallen asleep. Again, that, that's no euphemism. The resurrection of Christ and the certainty of our future resur resurrection has been transformed death so that it's, it's little more now than just restful, peaceful repose. A little snooze until we are roused by the return of the Savior. Encourage one another with that, with that concept. Use those words. Let's encourage each other with these words in verse 17. We will be caught up together, together with them. 
That is, with our loved ones, loved ones who, whom, whom we've lost, who, from whom we have been separated so pain, painfully. The, Jesus is telling us here, telling us here, there is going to be a glorious re- reunion one with your grandma, grandmother, with your beloved spouse. It's not unspiritual for you to to long for for that reunion and caught up with them. them. At at the same time, let's notice how Christocentric this passage is. And therefore how Christocentric this will be. The main thing, thing, your reunion loved one is going to be a wonderful thing. The main thing, the fullness of your joy is going to be in our in our reunion Christ. This this is true of us as we've already talked about, about but it'll be true one day physically and fully and finally. Can there be anything so sweet? Can there be anything more encouraging encouraging words at the end of verse 17? And so we will always always be with the Lord. Realize this, brothers and sisters, we are almost home. Come, faint, faint of heart, we're almost home. How many pilgrim saints have before us gone? No stopping now, we're almost home. Not much, not much long, and we will feast in the house of Zion. We, we will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things. We will, we will say, we will feast and weep no more. Amen. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly.